Hello, and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. This is a science and technology news show, and so we're going to start here by talking about some, some news that happened that I think most people around the world did not pay attention to. Okay. Gabe, and I believe you also were not paying attention to the 2023 Berlin Marathon. I, no, I didn't follow that one. So I watched it live. Really? I watched it live. Oh, you're a runner, yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, yeah, and the guys I run with were talking, oh, it's coming up, it's coming up. There's a lot of excitement around it. Um, and everyone knew weather conditions are going to be perfect. I heard it got disrupted by climate protesters, though. That's the one thing I did hear about. Uh, didn't affect the race. Okay. You could see on the Brandenburg Gate that there were some, there had been some spray paint and stuff. And the, okay. Yeah, there were talks about that. It all worked out fine. Yeah. Um, it was, yeah, conditions were just about ideal for possibly some records to fall. Mm-hmm. And everyone was looking at the male competitors, and that was not the amazing thing. The really, truly, deeply amazing thing that happened was when Tigzit Asifa, a 26-year-old from Ethiopia, finished the race. And I will go ahead and play a clip from that here. Through the Brandenburg Gate and into the glorious Berlin sunshine for Tigzit Asifa. Look at the clock. 2.11 on the clock. She's got 300 meters to go. Can she get under 2.12? I think she can. She's going to better the world record, possibly here, by over two minutes. She's striding away now. A few meters to go. And the world record is hers. And look at the clock. Two hours, 11.52. History is made. It is writ large in spectacular manner. Yeah, so she... The record in 2003, so 20 years ago, a British woman at the London Marathon, she set the record at that time mm-hmm. at about two hours and 15 minutes. And for the next 20 years, it dropped hardly at all, like a minute or so was taken off the record. And then she comes in. Blows it away by two minutes. Blows it away by two minutes in her third marathon ever. Wow. First one was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, two hours and 30 something minutes. A year ago in Berlin, two hours and 15 minutes, and now she absolutely obliterates the record. And then she gets through the finish line. The banner's draped. You know, she comes through. Everyone's celebrating. They drape the flag and stuff. Mm. And she stopped and untied her shoes, took one of them off, held it up right in front of the camera, and gave it a gigantic kiss. And it was an Adidas shoe. And I thought, this is the best branding this company could have ever asked for. And that was a sign to the world that it was the shoe, the shoes that, that did it? The that, old Michael Jordan Nike ad, it's got to be the shoes? That's the discussion now. Okay. And it's a big discussion. It's kind of limited to the running community, but it goes beyond the running community, part of a larger discussion in general. Mm-hmm. To understand it, um, she was wearing the latest and what appears to be the greatest Super shoe. Mm-hmm. So in running, there are shoes. Wait, are we doing an ad for Adidas now? Is that what Science Inscripted has become an Adidas I, well, marketing? You would think that because we're we're here at Germany's international <laughs> news broadcaster, and Adidas is from Germany. So you could think uh, that I accepted a payment by that company. And did no, you? No, I didn't. Of okay. course not. Okay. It's just interesting to me because it 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 is the latest chapter in a saga that has become yeah a, a real discussion about. The what, science of running shoes or what? Yeah, and what should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed. Okay. So it started in 2016 with another very popular shoemaker, Nike. Right. And back then they came out with a shoe. I'm going to look these up because they have all sorts of crazy names. This shoe in 2016 was called the, the Nike Zoom Vaporfly 4%. 
Four, 4%. Four, just keep 4% and maybe the word vapor in Va- mind. Vapor 4%, okay. And so they came out and they had this new shoe and there, there was a huge ad campaign behind it and they were talking about, it was called the Breaking 2 campaign. Uh, 4%, I thought. Well, 4%, actually, yeah. 4% represents what they expect your efficiency to increase by. Ah, okay. So 4% is not some arbitrary number. They had gone to the labs wherever they have their labs, somewhere in the U.S., and they tested these on elite athletes, and they were convinced this really does make you faster. Right. It's not just more comfortable. You are faster with this. Why? Do we know? Carbon plates, more responsive foam. Responsiveness, okay. And, yeah, these carbon plates in particular, that's what everyone kind of focused in on. Um, They give a quote-unquote propulsive sensation, or the other way to look at it is it has higher energy return. So every time you step... That squishy foam steals some of your energy. It's like running across a mattress, right? Mm. You're just not getting all of it back. Mm. And something about this carbon plate inside the shoe really returned it back. That was the claim. I thought it was nonsense. It's an ad. It, it's a shoe company. They want to sell shoes. Mm-hmm. This isn't true. And they also had this, you know, uh, patented foam that was also better for some reason. So. The Breaking 2 campaign was where they were going to strap these new fancy shoes on the top three marathon runners in the world and see if they could break this elusive two-hour mark. No human in history since the original marathon over in Greece had ever run that, that distance in under two hours. They'd come close, but never under. And if you just run the math, if it really is 4% faster, it was feasible. Yeah. So, what happened? They put it on three of the athletes. The one everyone was laser-focused on was the GOAT, the greatest of all time, Eliud Kipchoge. He's from Kenya. Uh, this, he, he's got all sorts of records. He might set a new one next year in Paris at the Olympics. The th- may, he might win the third Olympic marathon ever for him. No one has done that before. This guy's the best. Did he break the two-hour mark? Almost. Oh. I think he was, what was it, uh, 25 seconds off. Okay. But close. And it was the fastest anyone had ever run a marathon at that point. These, none of these um, new records actually count or counted because they broke a couple of the rules. You can't have different pacers throughout the race. And also, much later, one of the rules the World Athletic Association came up with was they're like, look, you can't, you can't have special shoes for one red runner. If you're going to have a race then these shoes have to come out four months in advance, and everyone has to have access to them. Otherwise, it's completely unfair. Right. But they're testing them. And so these numbers started rolling in. People are like, holy cow, this, this works, maybe? Or something else is going on? Like, this, this wasn't an ad campaign. It actually is based on a technological development that matters. Yeah. And so he almost broke it, and some other things, you know, some other races in between. And they're like, no, no, let's, let's do it again with an even newer shoe. And that's when it, they started to look weirder and weirder. No longer like the running shoes that all of us have grown up with. These shoes, uh, the next variation had like extended soles that went behind the shoe. It's like, wait, what? What's that? Like moon boots or what? Uh, Well, it just went further back off the back end of the shoe. And they later said that's for stability because when you have a lot of foam, these were thicker soles. Then when you're rounding corners, it feels like you're going to roll your ankle. I've run in shoes like this. And it's you can't take the the turn as tight. Mm. So that next set came out, except they put the... Next iteration of their, you know, new line of super duper shoes. I think this was how the many percent was that? Alpha Fly. They stopped. They actually stopped saying what percentage it was, which is like we, you know, we don't even know what we're getting into here. <laughs> this was the Nike Alpha Fly prototype that they strapped on to Kipchoge's feet, and they sent him off to Vienna, and he broke the two-hour mark. He broke it by twenty seconds. When was this again? That was twenty twenty, October of twenty twenty. Right. Now before that. 
again, the World Athletics body was like, okay, we need... Nike's doing something crazy in their labs, and, and we don't know where this is going, and we need rules. So this Alpha Fly shoe had a 39.5 millimeter drop. That's the, the, the drop from where your heel is down to your toes. So, so you're running on an, a decline almost. Or... Yeah, yeah, not quite like stilettos, but, yeah. but, but somewhere in between. Uh-huh. And the athletics body was like, okay, we're going to set the limit at 40. And those new shoes that, he w- that Kipchoge was wearing when he broke the two-hour barrier had three carbon plates in them. Like, no, we're not, this is not, a, this is not like, you know, the razors, first there was like one blade and then two and there were five and then eight or something. We're not going to do that. We're going to say there's one. You can have one carbon plate in there and we're going to chuck that record out and say it's not an official record. Oh, wow. So they took it away. They, yeah, they took that away and it's an unofficial official sub two, but it's never. And the same thing could happen with the, the, the record that happened this past weekend in Berlin? No, because those shoes. Had, far... had the one carbon plate. They have adhered to what are now the standards. Okay. Um, and just to, there is some science. We've only had like five years really of data to work with, maybe six years now with these super shoes. What do they actually do? Do they do something? They seem to do something. All these records are dropping. Um, and what's interesting is there are a lot of different studies out there. I'll just talk real quickly about a couple of them. Uh, they do work. They increase running efficiency, which is not the same as In speed. everyone or marathon runners? Mostly marathon. So as you drop the the mileage, if you're going, if you're doing like a 10k, they don't seem to make a difference. So if I were to put them on, I'm not a runner, I'm a slow guy. Would they? You're pretty quick. My stride. They would probably or change the way I run, make me faster. Or? They would probably make you faster, but again, over longer distances. Ah. Um, that's what the studies seem to indicate. Not all of the super shoes are alike. <laughs> so when Nike, this was the opening salvo in what has become an arms race to make the, the world's next super well, shoe. A foot race, I guess. Uh, oh, oh, that would have been way better. Nice one. So all the other companies have tried. They've studied these other shoes. I'm not going to list all the names, but Hoka was in there. Asics were in there. All the classics. Sauconies, which I used to wear growing up. They weren't as good at that point as the Nikes. And what's interesting is the f- latest experiment that I saw took the three Adidas prototypes. And no one's sure if these were the same or different than the one that was just worn uh, in the Berlin Marathon. And there was a massive swing. So either you were up to 11% more efficient, which translates into speed, or you were 11% less efficient. It depends on the runner. It's not going to work for everyone. Got it. Uh, These studies show that men on average, this one was with Nike shoes, are 2.8 minutes faster in a marathon. Women are 4.3 minutes faster in a marathon. They did that looking back at marathons where these super shoes were being worn. I'll show you here, Gabe. This is the picture of, of the winning shoe. Right there. It is now in a glass case, I believe, in Berlin. And that is... I'm going to have to read these names. I don't See, know what these... this is completely different from what you were describing before. This, this seems to incline, go up. The, the... the Adidas shoe. Yeah. Right. Well, so here's, here's... What they're talking about there with the Adidas shoe is what they call a... These look like boats. <laughs> Yeah, a foot strike, like where where they've put the the foot strike. Yeah, the the, the Nike ones are straight up alien almost. <laughs> they've they've cut out the middle of it. They're bizarre looking. Um, and what Adidas is saying, and I'm going to give you the name now of its of this shoe. And again, you don't have to buy it, and you you can't buy it right now. That's why it's safe for me to say this. Mm. And even if you could, they're 500 euros, and you can only wear them once. That's why. That's what they say. Here's a quote from the company: One race, so one marathon. Plus familiarization time. People hate this in the running community because it's 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 kind of wasteful. Yeah. Um, it's elitist. 
either you can afford it or you can't. And it falls into this category of what uh, in all sports is referred to as mechanical doping. So everyone's familiar with doping. Oh, where you yeah. inject things into your body to make yourself stronger and uh, I remember when titanium good. drivers came out for the golfing community. That was huge. The biggest big birth that got banned right away. S yeah. Same discussion. So we're all okay with the idea of more optimization of the human body, whether through, you know, the kind of smartwatch that I'm wearing. You can do your VO2 max. You can look at the wattage that's coming out of you as you run. There are these new devices that measure your lactose. I don't know how they do that. In fact, that was one tweet I saw. Don't spend, don't spend hundreds of dollars or euros on a shoe when you can buy little devices that do something much more important for you over the long term, especially a shoe that you only wear for one marathon. It's not a good looking shoe. Well, it's light. Think. It's the lightest shoe. It's 138 grams. That's less than five ounces or about 0.3 pounds. The Nikes, by comparison, are up to eight ounces. It's so light, I don't believe it has tread on the bottom. It's like it's rubber and it's smooth. It's strange. Um, and yeah, the question is, sh should this be allowed? Hmm. And then the counter argument is, should this take away at all from what this woman did? You are the runner. What do you think? What's the answer to this question? Do you, have you tried these shoes on before? I, any of these super shoes? Um, I have a cheaper version, much cheaper version of the Nike shoes which has such a such a long name. I can't remember. Any you ran to work this morning. Does, does yes, I did. Help? No, and I was wearing those shoes. Yeah. Um, I think they are softer with every foot strike, and hence it makes, I, I, it, it feels to me, anecdotally, personally, like it's better for my joints. And that's one of the discussions here as well. Maybe these shoes aren't really about racing faster, running faster. It's about if they're softer and more efficient on your body, then you can train better. Now, that wouldn't apply to this ridiculously overpriced one-time-use super shoe because you're not going to be wearing it much unless you're a, a millionaire or a billionaire, and then you just keep cycling out the shoes. But you would recommend buying a cheaper iteration of these super shoes to our running fanatics out there? I think most runners would say go to a, a specialized running shop, and they'll put shoes on your feet, and it, it's, it's, like, it's like Harry Potter, you know, with a, with a wand that is your wand. It's hard to say why. Wait a minute, the Nimbus, Nimbus 2000? No, those, those, that was a broom. Oh. 3000, wasn't it? Or, no, it was the 2000. No, but you're going to put some shoes on. I, I've tried shoes on where this foam, we're, we're in the generation of the foam sole, and where it feels like you're standing on, on waffles. It's terrible. You're rolling left and right. They're way too soft. So, certain shoes are going to work for you. But I think it's an interesting part of um, the sports optimization process. It's a big discussion. It takes nothing away from this incredible 26-year-old from Ethiopia, Tigzit Asefa, who ran the best race a woman has ever run in her third marathon. Mm. And that's what a lot of people are kind of reminding everyone. So maybe about. let's celebrate that instead of the shoe. Let's celebrate that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's we'll an keep interesting in mind the shoes are making running easier. new chapter in the debate, and uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, let's also talk about alcohol use disorder. Today. Sure. The opposite of running a marathon, possibly. Yeah. Um, study out of the United States, um, and before we get into the study, just some stats, out, also out of, out of the USA on, on alcohol use disorder. And uh, between 12 and 15% of the American population, the adult American population, suffers from alcohol use disorder. So one in six or one in seven One in people. seven people. Yeah. Every seventh person walking down the street is suff yeah. suffering from it. Yeah. And um, one of the biggest problems with this disorder is once you have it, it's hard to, it's hard to beat it. Uh, I went four years ago, I went to rehab. And when I left, I remember the doctor telling me that 
you know, t- talking about relapse because after rehab often comes relapse. And he was saying 10%. And I was like, oh, okay, only 10%. Only, He's like, no, 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 no only 10%. On. You know, switch that around. 10% don't relapse. So 90%. These were German numbers. So 88, 88 90% of, of Germans who leave rehab relapse within the first year. So, well, you've, oh, that, so you've made it way beyond that threshold. Way beyond four years, yeah. Congratulations. And, yeah. I mean, <laughs> seriously. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And the reason why that happens is that when you drink alcohol over long periods of time, when you suffer from chronic alcohol use disorder, you have hijacked your reward pathways in the brain. Essentially, your, your entire reward system, the, the process of, or the, the production of dopamine is not killed, but it's, it's reduced drastically. Because the more that you drink, the more dopamine is released, the harder it is for that dopamine to get released. So you have to drink more to release that dopamine. And you do it over and over, drink more and more and more and more. And at the end of it, you've got a, a dopamine system that doesn't work anymore. Exhausted. Right. Now we get to the study. This was out of uh, the researchers in Oregon, Ohio State University in San Francisco. They took eight rhesus macaques. Monkeys. Primates. And got them drunk over a long period of time. (laughs) So rhesus macaques, they are the primates out there that like to drink. If you put a light beer or let's say a a glass of alcohol with 4% next to their food and water, they'll take the alcohol. Really? That's just what they do. They take it. Yeah. Because I, 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 sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. I watched a video where it was a tourist resort on the beach, and the, I think there were rhesus macaques coming mm. out of the, the, the trees mm. and stealing the margaritas and the daiquiris. They and, love it. Yeah. They like the stuff. Yeah. Okay? And the, the quote from the researchers, they habituated, these, these eight rhesus macaques were habituated to the consumption of 4% alcohol over a... <laughs> Over a prolonged period they, of time. They were, turned, so we got eight, they were turned into alcoholics. We got eight drunk macaques here. Okay. Okay. And four of them were given a virus that delivered, it was a harmless virus that delivered a gene directly to the part of the brain that's responsible for this, this reward system. So the, the production of dopamine. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to rewire, rewire the, the dopamine pathways to, to make more dopamine again. Because what, what happens with these rhesus macaques, if they're drunk for this long amount of time, they're not making the dopamine. So the idea was to reintroduce the, yeah, the, the dopamine pathways and see what happens. Those four macaques that were, that were given this treatment stopped drinking alcohol. Over a 12-month period, they were, the, that glass was put next to their food and water. They avoided it. They didn't. Avo- avoided they, they it. They didn't touch the alcohol. They went for the water. And the other four, over that twelve-month period, continued drinking. Went. They're drinking ten drinks a day. Ten drinks a day at four percent alcohol. Can you imagine? A, a rhesus macaque weighs seventeen pounds. Can you imagine how wasted <laughs> these primates were? <laughs> these four. These four macaques. Um, did yeah. they? Did they also test that? Okay. It, if if they com- if they go if they stop they completely stop they look at it it's there they smell it the temptation is obviously there but they have no desire or well, maybe, they, they, maybe they, no temptation okay hold on they did it in cycles so it, it's not like they put the alcohol next to the food and water right away they they had four week cycles of abstinence and then reintroduction so right after the therapy they went for four weeks without touching or without being given the alcohol and then after a month of that 
the alcohol was put next to their food and water, gotcha. they, they didn't touch it. So they broke the cycle first. Yeah. Upped the dopamine production mm-hmm. back to normalized levels and exactly. set a new threshold for um, feeling kind of the desire, the need to, to to get the dopamine in that way. Went away. Went away. We. This is a new era of of neurological medicinal practice. I mean, if things like this work, I mean, there's, it's it's being tested right now in in Parkinson's patients. So this this is we're we're far away from this ever being a viable treatment for alcoholics out there. Parkinson's, and anyways, sorry, Parkinson's patients. Why? For dopamine, dopamine production. But for for alcoholics out there this this would only be in addition to this having there would be you need trials human trials before years down the road before this is a viable treatment but even when it's ready it would only be for the yeah the the, the worst of the of the worst of the alcoholics this is only if if you're so bad off that you're on the verge of death of course because you would want to exhaust other other avenues of treatment other therapies before you would do something like this, because it's it's an irreversible brain surgery. I was just that's the issue. So I know with genetic editing in general, yeah, um, you may have a limited positive result with no idea what the other consequences are. So it may stop. It may it may cause a cessation of you know interest in alcohol, but what else? Yeah, what, especially what if, if you're editing genes. We don't know at this point what what the ramifications or the possible consequences could be. But the fact that it worked this well. On these macaques, these drunk macaques, is a yeah, is, is an incredible, yeah, incredibly positive sign for neurological research and gene therapies. Well, and fast forward 50, 70 years, you may have a, a detox clinic or a, a place you go to for three to four weeks, part of which includes pop a pill, yeah, to to cure you. Strange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, any other questions out there? Any thoughts about a procedure like that one? Immediate concerns or mm. straight up euphoria, if you think it's a great idea? Or is it time for a new pair of shoes? <laughs> yes, you at DW.com. All of our listeners out there, you are in all sorts of different places in an amazing amount of countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have access to that data. I can see which countries you're listening. You're a data from. guy, so yeah. I'm a, you know me. I'm a data guy. Yeah. No, it, you're everywhere, and uh, that also means possibly you're listening to this from a city or from a town or a village in the developed world, or in the developing world all around. Although I guess, I, yeah, I see where you're going with that one. Yeah. And the thing I want you to ask yourself, because, yeah, we are talking about the developed world here for now, is do you think it's more likely that people will suffer from depression living in a rural environment, so a non-urban environment? Not in a city. Not in a city. Or do you think it's more likely that people will suffer depression in an urban environment? And I would like to, you to actually think about what you believe is probably true or more true, because we now have an answer to that. A huge study, uh, and the, the kind of t- study that has access to this kind of data is called a meta-analysis. It's looking at 
in this case, 80 different studies that have been done on this topic, comprising 540,000 people has been done looking at the difference between if you're living in a city and if you're living and if you're not living in a city. And if you are living in a city, it is 37% more likely that you are depressed. 1.37 times more likely that you will be depressed if you're in a city. Yeah, the range was anywhere from, I think, 30% to 37%, but it was, it was shocking. That's, that's a big, big, big difference. It's statistically significant. It's something that demands more attention. And so, Gabe, even though this was a rather small study, didn't get much media attention at all, you and I wanted to talk to the lead author to figure out what on earth is going on there. That's right. His name is Colin Zhu. We spoke to him for about 35 minutes about why. Why, if I'm living in a city in the developed world, is this is it is it 37% more likely that I'll be depressed? We had a great talk with him, but he um, the audio isn't that great because he was recording with his BlackBerry, Colin was, and uh, turned it off inadvertently. Auto- it, it didn't work. It didn't work. But yeah. I love that he, he tried well, it with we, the BlackBerry. We, we, we yeah. did get some audio, and I asked him, uh, well, I, the way I framed the question was that, look, wh- why? Why? If, if, I, if I go to a city, do I become depressed? And, uh, yeah, he cut me down on that one. Oh, well, Gabriel, I, 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 I would catch you there. And uh, I, I wouldn't exactly say that if you're moving to a city, uh, you're, you're uh, guaranteed to get depression and uh, you're, you're putting yourself uh, at risk uh, the, because uh, our data at the moment do, doesn't, uh, uh, can't comment on a causal explanation. We can't say that moving here causes this. Uh, uh, it, it'd be great to have a longitudinal study looking at people moving places and seeing how their risk changes through their life. But we don't have enough information to comment on that at the moment. Again, that was Colin Zhu there, not recording on his BlackBerry. He's from the College of Idaho, um, Statistical Modeling of, of Psychological Disorders. Well, we haven't explained how we got that audio then, if he didn't record it on his BlackBerry. Well, that was Zoom. That, that part yeah. was, that was uh, good. Yeah. That was, yeah. good. That was good. So that was one thing we want to let you listen to because it, it's, it's complicated to tease out. Either it could be that an urban environment is leading to negative mental health outcomes because of some of the nasty parts of an urban environment. Mm. Trash everywhere, people everywhere, noise pollution, actual pollution. It could also be, that was one thing he wanted to make clear, that uh, people who tend to have these mental health outcomes are drawn toward city life because it's, it's an area, for example, that may be more accepting of that than mm-hmm. where they're from. It could be anything. He, there is no answer. We don't know yet. What we do know <laughs> is that this is true for the developed world. If 37%, up to 37% more likely to suffer depressive episodes in an urban environment, it is not true at all in developing countries. And that was my question for him. How on earth could that possibly be? And, and what does it say about the whole study? Let's play the actual question that you asked him. How? That, that completely contradicts in, in the best way. Everything we've been talking to uh, uh, up to this point, the whole, you know what I mean? Like the whole idea is that because I've lived, I've lived in urban environments and I don't like the lack of green space sometimes. I don't like the, the exhaust going into my nostrils when I don't want it to. And yet that can't be it because if in developing countries, those same things are definitely happening in, the, happening in those urban environments and yet they're still fine. Their mental health is fine. What explains that? Yeah, so that's uh, um, one interesting question because uh, uh, we compiled data from a bunch of different studies looking at a bunch of different countries. And uh, overall, it seems to uh, wash out 
uh, across uh, in developing countries. Uh, that is, there doesn't seem to be a significant uh, difference uh, one way or the other with uh, depression being greater in rural or urban areas. Uh, now, the causal, ex uh, the explanations that I had mentioned before, the drift and the breeder hypotheses, that of people moving around or that of city features causing depression, uh, whether or not they have the same pull or magnitude in developing countries uh, is um, uh, is an interesting question. Uh, for instance, uh, if you subscribe to the drift hypothesis, uh, that is that uh, people who have who uh, live in rural areas are more likely to move to cities because there's resources for mental health and less stigma. It's possible that in developing countries, uh, there is poor, uh, there is a lack of mental health resources uh, in general. Uh, there's a greater lack of mental health resources in general, whether in urban or rural area environments. So that's less likely to pull people in general. Yeah. So again, not true in developing countries. And he was kind of offering some ideas as to why there. But again, there is no answer. Hmm. There just isn't any answer to this fact that you're more likely in the developed world to be or to, to have depressive episodes if you're living in an urban environment. And that is not true in the developing world. And that's a fact. And now you know it. And if you think you know the reason why, email us. SU at DW.com. Or read the actual study, Urbanicity and Depression in the Journal of Affective Disorders. But yeah, like Connor said, email us. That's what we want you to do. Email SU at DW.com. Science Unscripted. W. Made for Minds. <laughs>